Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Evie O'Hallam. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we explore what can books do that other forms of activism can't? The book that we're addressing today is called Is Rape a Crime? Usually, we seek out joyful topics. This topic is certainly more difficult, but it's also, as you'll see, a call to action, and it's a testament to strength and to healing, and our conversation today left me at least feeling a desire to fight for change. I assume that's true for you too, Eve. Is that Absolutely. It was illuminating as well. I thought that I knew a lot about sexual assault, but it turns out there was a lot I didn't know about how sexual assault crimes are treated in the legal system. And, you know, it's true. Knowledge is power. And so there is, I think, something very empowering about our conversation with Michelle and hopefully this episode. Yeah, I agree. I After our conversation, I came across this quote from James Baldwin, which I think is so apt. He said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And Michelle Bowdler, the author of this book, does such a brave and honest job of facing what happened to her and what's happening systemically with respect to sexual assault cases. So this conversation isn't joyful. We can't call it that. But I think we can call it inspiring and motivating. Absolutely. So Michelle's book is called Is Rape a Crime? In the 1980s, she was the victim of a home break-in and rapes. Her book details those crimes and the failure of the criminal justice system to address them. It also goes a huge step further to explore how even though rape is described as a despicable act and is legally a felony, in our country. Sexual assaults are crimes that are uniquely trivialized and ignored by the system. Yes. Michelle also talks about how an experience like hers affects your job and affects relationships with loved ones. She also tells us what you can do if someone you love is sexually assaulted. And I found that very empowering. Michelle talks about, too, how she was able not just to recover, but to move on and to find love and joy. That also is really inspiring and, I think, helpful. Yes. So let's tell you a little bit about Michelle. Michelle Bowdler is the Executive Director of Health at Tufts University and the author of Is Rape a Crime? A Memoir, an Investigation, and a Manifesto, which was longlisted for the National Book Award. Michelle is a recipient of a 2017 Barbara Deming Memorial Award for nonfiction and has been nominated more than once for the Pushcart Prize. Her work has been published in the New York Times and in various anthologies. Michelle has worked in the public health field for years on issues of addiction, violence prevention, sexual health, HIV education, and prevention. We started by asking Michelle whether the act of writing the book was helpful to her in any way, and here's what she said. The writing process was very helpful, but in a way that I didn't expect. I 
had been an English major in college. I had taken a lot of writing classes. You know, I was young. I was just learning and uh, really got waylaid by this um, by this attack in my home. And getting back to writing itself was something really meaningful in my life. I don't know that I would call it cathartic, but what I will say is that it's been very interesting for me to see the book outside of myself and to see the writing and the experience outside of myself and to begin to hear people's reactions. And it also helped me turn it into something different than just a personal experience, but into something that I think was more meaningful for the larger change that I was hoping to see. You write so powerfully about how silencing rape is, how difficult it is to talk about, particularly for victims, but also for many of their family members and friends. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about those challenges and how you overcame them to write this book? Yeah, I actually was just writing a little bit about that today. Hmm. I know for me, and and I think I might have just mentioned this briefly in the book, but it's a much larger point that when you tell somebody what happened, they often get a look on their face or a look in their eyes that they mean as kindness and empathy. I used to experience it as fear. Mm. And I used to experience it as pity. And also, they would always say, did they ever catch him? And then I would have to say, them. Mm. And then they would look even more horrified. And so then I had to reckon with that this thing that was simply part of an experience that I didn't choose, but that was part of my life, was so hard for others. And so it wasn't that I was ashamed of what had happened or that I felt like it was my fault or that I would be judged, but it was simply something that I experienced as elongating the difference between myself and others in a way that made me feel alone. Um, And then at work, I was actually the principal investigator for a national campus violence prevention project. And at the time, very few people knew my history. And there were a lot of contentious meetings where the larger university was talking about what would be an appropriate policy for responding to students who had reported uh, sexual assault. And somebody said to me, you know, I really wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily disclose your history because people will see it in the lens of everything you're saying isn't based on your expertise, but it's somehow based on something else. At the time, I listened, but I actually really disagree with that. I don't think that having an experience and being able to talk about the impact should negate what it is a person has to offer others. And I found that when I started telling people, or even now when a lot of my colleagues have actually read the book, they have had nothing but um, both an appreciation of the writing and the message, but also they say, you know, I really didn't even understand the full 
impact of this. And it was really instructive and important for me to read it. I would think the combination is so powerful, right? Not just your expertise, but along with the experience. Yeah. Um, So I have two daughters in college now. As you well know, the rates of sexual assault on campus are terrifying. Yeah. Something that I worry about, which might, I think, is part of why I was particularly moved by the difficulties that you had interacting with your mother in the immediate aftermath of your attack. Mother-daughter relationships are just fraught. Yeah. Do you mind sharing what happened with your mom? And do you have any advice for mothers who are having this kind of devastating experience? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't mind at all. So I was a recently graduated person living what I thought was like the best life ever in terms of really having my independence. And part of that included feeling like I was ready to be on my own. And in my family, we all live far apart. So when we would go to visit for Thanksgiving and everybody would converge on my mother's house, I might say something like, oh, I think I'm going to take the dog out for a walk. And everyone would be like, oh, I'll go. Wait, I want to go. I want to go. And be, and you, it was like everyone had to join arms and like try to find a way to get out the door together. <laughs> and so I knew that by calling my mother, it was the same thing as calling my mother, my sister, and my two aunts because they would all want to come and converge on Boston. Mm-hmm. My mother had lost her husband when she was a 31-year-old woman. She raised two children by herself. Her second marriage was really problematic. And she was struggling herself at the time that this happened. And I needed help so much. And I felt like if I asked her to come, there would be some part of her coming that would require me to take care of her. Even a question like, what hotel is close to you? Or do you think it makes sense for us to all stay together? How long do you think we should stay? I felt like I didn't have the capacity to answer any questions. I just needed to be around people who could just be with me. Mm -hmm. And so I said, don't come. And to this day, I don't really know if I meant it, but I said it. I said, give it some time. I need some time. And, you know, Mary and I, my spouse, we've talked about how if something like this happened to our kids, how hard it would be to listen to them and that we would just be in the car before we even gave them a chance (laughs) to say no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's not to judge my mother, but it's to sort of say that maybe what I asked wasn't exactly fair, but it was what I needed. And then later in the book, I talk about how my sister, when my mom was dying, my sister, we talked about it because I. It's like I told her not to come, and then I I never quite forgave her for listening to me. And what my sister said was that the rape crisis center in her town had said, your sister needs to reestablish some sense of control and just give her some time. And I think that what I would say to parents out there and guardians is that if somebody said to me, my child just told me that I shouldn't come, I would probably still come and send a text that said, so I want you to know I'm 
10 minutes away. I just am here. And when you're ready, any time of day and night, you know, just let me know and I'll, and I'll come, but I'm close enough that you can change your mind. And if you have the ability, if you have the privilege, if you have the resources, if you can miss work, that's what I would say. And if you can't, then you can't. And I think that people understand that that's not something that everyone can do. Yeah. I read a book called Rape in My Journey Back, and there's some other title to it. It's by Susan Venable Rain, I think is her name. She also suffered from a home invasion and her parents came to stay with her and they didn't really talk much, but they all slept in the same bed for like two weeks. She said that that was a gift for her, that she didn't have to say anything, but she knew that she'd be able to sleep every night. That's such wise and moving advice to be there for your loved one, to be respectful of her needs and space, and to make no impositions. I'm so glad that Michelle shared that with us. I am too. Just the notion that even if someone doesn't know what they need or says they don't want you to be there, just show up. Right. It's sort of, I'm I'm both present and to the extent that you want it, completely absent. Exactly. One of the other things that Michelle talks about in her book is, unfortunately, the insensitivity of the detectives who were assigned to her case. There are a number of examples of how the way they responded to her was truly appalling. Her words will describe this much better than mine ever could. So I'm just going to read a little bit of her description of what happened the day after her attack when she got herself to the police station for fingerprinting. There's a dog barking somewhere inside the police station. It goes on for several minutes. The detective who took my fingerprints has situated himself behind a typewriter. The dog barks louder and louder. I catch the police officer's eye. You're all set. You can leave any time, he says. The dog barks again, and he drops his pen. He looks in the direction of the noise and then at me. Just like a woman. Can't keep her mouth shut. I stare at him, feeling the immediate need to escape. I wonder if anyone would block the exit if I ran for my life. The officer ponders his joke and laughs to himself. A week ago, a former version of me would have gotten up and effortlessly engaged this man in a discussion about misogyny, power, and politics. Unlike that dog in the police station that can't seem to shut up, I am rendered mute. What can I possibly say that would make a difference to a person who would make a joke like that to someone who had just been raped? A joke that categorizes all women as loud and annoying, unaware of the space we take up and effortlessly compared to dogs. It's so upsetting. It's really, it's just so upsetting. Yeah. And, you know, on top of what the detectives actually did and the disrespect they actually showed, what they didn't do was also traumatizing. They never communicated with Michelle about her case. Yeah. And can I also just add here... What happened to Michelle, this was the 1980s, but she says in her book and in our conversation with her, things like this are still going on routinely. Obviously, not all police detectives are so insensitive, but we can't listen to this and think, oh, that was then, because it's very much also happening now. Absolutely. So she writes about that moment. I remember the words, but mostly his tone. I had done something wrong broken a rule. What a nuisance. What a bother. Hi, detective. It's Michelle Bowdler from that Glenville Avenue break-in in Alston at the end of June, I said, hoping I didn't need to be any more specific. I couldn't yet say the word rape out loud. 
It took me years to add an S at the end of that word to describe what happened accurately, the rapes. I'll be moving soon, and I don't have a new phone number yet, and wondered if I should call you when I do, so you'll be able to find me when you have some information or maybe a lead in the case. The phone was so wet with my anxious sweat, I had to hold it with a paper towel. While I have you on the line, do you have any updates? Have there been any more break-ins in the area? We're the police, he said, ignoring my questions. We know how to find people. That's what we do. Didn't I say I'd call you if we knew anything? And I haven't. So that means I don't have anything. I mean, (laughs) yeah. And that was their last conversation. He never, ever reached out to her. So we talked to Michelle about how even today, the way that law enforcement responds to sexual assault cases perpetuates and maybe even compounds trauma. Here's what she said. I don't think it's okay to send people into a situation where you are asking them to voluntarily participate in something that's going to additionally traumatize them after they've just gone through something so traumatizing. And it actually raises the chance of somebody suffering from chronic PTSD as opposed to something more situational that they can recover more quickly from. Mm -hmm. I talk in the book about a lot of instances where things have gone very, very badly whether it's in a courtroom or a judge's decision or in law enforcement, and then there's bad publicity. And then after that, you might see that there's a requirement that sexual assault prevention or sexual assault response becomes part of a police officer's training. Mm -hmm. One training isn't going to do it. Who's doing the training, I think, is critical Are you talking to another police officer who's explaining to you their version of what a sexual assault victim is going through, or is it done by experts in the field? Are there debriefing sessions with a social worker or with someone who's qualified in rape crisis response to say, somebody's going to present a case, we're going to go through step-by-step what happened, what questions were asked, we're going to think together about responses. I think that police officers aren't necessarily trained that your only job isn't to solve a crime. It's actually to leave people intact who are coming to you for help. That's also part of your responsibility. Yeah. And also, one of the things you make so clear in the book is how traumatizing non-communication can be, that when there's no follow-up, as in your situation, that that you never heard back from the detectives. That's not just a miscarriage of justice. It's also an injury, a further injury to the person who's been attacked. That's right. I think it's a different side of the same coin of what we were just talking about. Because if you believe that your only job is to solve this crime that has been reported to you, And you don't really have a lot of good news because maybe the rape evidence hasn't been tested or for any number of reasons. It doesn't mean that you can't reach out to somebody and say, hey, listen, I just want to give you an update. We're having a hard time. We thought we might have some luck with a certain thing that happened. There was a similar crime in a different area and we looked into it. 
but the description didn't match. And, you know, I just thought you'd want to know that because you probably read that story too. That would have meant the world to me. Mm -hmm. Like, we actually believe what happened to you is really serious. We are working as hard as we can. And, you know, students have said that to me too, that if they do go forward with the sexual assault complaint at school, in whatever school it is, this is not necessarily where I work. If the process itself is respectful, where you can tell that the people who are going through the process are trained and that they speak to you about what's happening in a way so that you're not waiting for information when you feel incredibly anxious, that even if the outcome is not exactly what the victim would have wanted, they say, you know what, I really appreciate this process. I felt heard. I felt respected. Thank you. And that's very different than feeling like the process was as bad or worse than what happened. It's clear that communication and understanding are so key to healing, and not just with interactions with the police. Another part of Michelle's story is what happened to her professionally after her attacks. So Michelle was recently graduated from college, and she had landed her absolute dream job working as an assistant editor for a magazine in Boston that had national distribution. And when she came back to work a week after the attack, her boss, who knew what had happened, acted as basically as if she'd taken an unapproved vacation, and she couldn't concentrate or get much work done at all. She says in the book, I try reading articles and can't make sense of them. My lunch sits untouched. Police sirens make my heart race. I notice myself wiping tears off my cheeks, unaware that I'm feeling anything at all. After two weeks of this, she asks her boss if she can take a short leave of absence, maybe a month. I'm hoping you'll let me do it. Take the time off, I mean. If I were quitting, it would take at least a month to find someone else. Why not just give me that month and I'll come back in better shape? And the boss says, I already gave you that first week off and paid it as sick time. If I give you the month off, what's to say you won't need more time or quit then? It would put us way behind schedule if I had to fill the position after waiting a whole month for you to return. I'll get back to you. I mean, needless to say, he gets back to her and says he can't give her the time off. And so she ends up quitting her job. I know we don't usually curse on this podcast, but I mean, what an asshole. Just Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Ultimately, fortunately for Michelle, things end well. She spent four years temping and doing freelance work, and then she found a new career path and met the woman who became her wife. And eventually, she decided to write this book, which has reconnected her with her love for writing. We asked her whether the enormous positive response for the book might be a signal that maybe we can hope for change. Here's what she said. A lot of people have asked me why I wrote the book and what did I hope to get out of writing the book? I never expected that it would be published. It was sold at auction and two major publishers wanted it. And I never in my wildest dreams expected that. I kind of just thought, well, you know, we have a bold title. How will we get people to understand? How will they want to read it? And so this long list, I'm like, maybe this will help. Hmm. If you asked me, why did you write the book? That's exactly what it is. Because if people read it and they say to me, I thought I knew a lot about sex crimes and this was shocking. Mm. Yeah. 
I felt that way. The idea that so often nothing happens. I mean, I was definitely in the camp of so often nothing happens. You know, it's the funding, it's the lack of manpower, it's the he said, she said, blah, blah, blah. And then your book makes it really clear that, mm, no, often it just doesn't happen. People just don't even bother. Yeah. 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 That was eye-opening for yeah. me. And also, as impossibly difficult as it must have been to tell your personal story in as much detail as you did, really putting us there and talking about the ramifications of this act for so many years afterwards, that um, must have been so hard. But it was also, for the reader, I you know came away from this feeling about that experience something on a different level, I think, than I had before. Thank you, because that was why I did it. I felt like you can't understand the impact of the disregard if you don't understand what actually happened. So maybe now is the right time to talk about the title of your book, Is Rape a Crime? Can you explain what you mean by that? There's really two reasons for the title. One is that... It's an actual question that somebody asked me. I was at an advocacy event with somebody. We felt like we were being asked to help law enforcement understand the impact of knocking on somebody's door 20 years after they were assaulted and saying, you know, we just got to testing our quote unquote backlogged rape kits and guess what? We found your perpetrator. And not only that, but it's tied to seven other crimes. She looked at me and she said, you know, you really have to ask yourself if rape can be considered a crime, given what's been happening to this rape evidence, the non-investigation. And she sort of went through all the ways in which sexual assault and rape are minimized and our cases neglected. And that always stuck with me. And then it was clear to me that the myth that society puts forth is that rape is one of the most serious violations that can happen to a human being, that it is horrific, that it's horrible, that it's unimaginable. And all of that is true. But then the response is, what is it, like less than 10 out of 1,000 rapes ever result in anybody spending a day in jail. And a lot of cases are deemed as unfounded or baseless before an investigation even occurs. Rapists are excused in court because they came from a quote unquote good family and we don't want to ruin their future or victims have to prove their veracity before anybody even wants to listen to their case. And that officers aren't trained and that special victims units are often just a a prop, a publicity stunt to make people feel like cities are responding more seriously to crimes of sexual violence, but they're under-resourced and people aren't trained. And so all of that doesn't fit or that somebody who talks openly about sexually assaulting women is not disqualified to be president of the United States. So I feel like I'm asking a real question. Mm -hmm. It's not whether it's a crime, but is it treated with the seriousness that we pretend it deserves? Maybe this is encapsulated in 
what you just said, or maybe it's just obvious, but why do you think that sex crimes are so uniquely minimized? I want to say misogyny. (laughs) First of all, there's a history of how rape has been uniquely minimized throughout centuries. There's a point in the book where I talk about how rape was taken more seriously when women were considered men's property. And so a crime of rape was considered a crime against the man as opposed to the woman. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, when there's a choice about looking at whose experience seems important in every single aspect of what happens during a sexual assault, like rapists having parental rights up until very, very recently, or people talking as if rape is an issue of he said, she said, when that is basically saying you believe that it's as likely as not that a person reporting a sex crime is lying, which is not based in fact, it's not based in reality, and it's not based in any understanding of the magnitude of effort that somebody who has experienced this, what it would take for them to go to get treated at a hospital, number one, and number two, report to a hostile entity that you know isn't necessarily going to believe what you have to say. And yet we still talk about it as if it's as likely as not that a woman is lying Mm -hmm. or it's a dangerous time for men in America because of the Me Too movement, or now we can't hire women because I'm going to be falsely, you know, quote unquote, falsely accused of sexual assault, or we can't have a consequence for somebody and ruin, quote unquote, ruin their life when the victim's life has changed forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to share a, a tiny story, if, if that's okay. Sure. Yes. The last time I served on jury duty, I got called for voir dire. And this is in New York City. And, you know, they take, I don't know, 50, 75 people and bring us into a room. And then they take us in jury-sized groups to ask questions. And so you sit there for a long time listening to other people answer their questions. So I'm sitting in the audience. And one of the questions that people were asked was, have you or has anyone you know ever been the victim of a violent crime? And so, you know, I'm kind of answering the questions as they go along in my own head. And and I think to myself, no, I, I don't really know anyone who's been a victim of a violent crime. And of the people in the jury box at that time, maybe one or two of them said yes. And they described, I don't know, a robbery or something like that. And it took about 10 minutes for the anvil to fall on my head. Mm. And I thought, oh, no, wait a minute. I know people who have been victims of sexual assault. And I started thinking in my head, oh, well, there's this person, this person. Off the top of my head, I could think of 10 people I know. And I know personally, not just read about in a magazine. And then I thought, well, given the statistics on sexual violence, every single person in America has either been the victim of sexual assault or knows someone who has. And there were two things that really struck me there. One was, 
wow, I can't believe it took me 10 minutes to have this thought. And then the other was, what would it look like if in every courthouse in the United States every day, whenever that question got asked as part of Wadir, the answer was 100% yes. Hmm. What would it have meant to the people in that room who were rape victims and rape survivors or who had lived through that experience with a loved one to have them say, do you know anybody who's been the victim of a violent crime? And that includes all of these categories Mm -hmm. just to educate people. And then maybe they wouldn't ask that question anymore. Right. Because all of us would have to say yes. You know, this is not an easy book to read, and this is not an easy time to read a book that isn't easy, but I have to emphasize that it's worth it. This is an age-old, ongoing, pervasive problem that needs to be addressed, and I think the book is an important step toward that. I think so, too. And just to give everyone a sense of how pervasive the problem is, one out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. And of those incidents, the vast majority, 85%, are completed. And so it's only when we come a lot closer to understanding all that happens, all of the ramifications, that we can take the really important steps toward improvement. So we always thank you for listening, but thank you in particular for listening today. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Yes, you can reach us if you'd like at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. And our website is www.bookdreamspodcast.com. You can find Michelle online at Michelle Bowdler and her website, michelle-bowdler.com. Michelle has two L's. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. Until next time, keep book dreaming.